welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. I am here with Jesse Thistle. He's an, an author, a, a father, and a, a member of the, of the Métis Nation. Um, he's a professor. <laughs> and wow, uh, yeah, what a writer. So Jesse, w- welcome. Welcome to the well, show. Thank you. Thank you for that illustrious introduction. I'm honored to be here. Yeah, and I'm, I'm honored to have you. And I was just saying before we came on, man, I've shed some tears reading this book. It's a, it's a powerful story. Uh, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a hell of a story, and sort of, yeah, like remarkable that I sit here with you now. You know, as a father, married, professor, given you know where you came from and what and what you've been through. So I'm, I'm so excited to get into the story and and to. And to learn, like how you did it, how, how you how you get get yourself uh, did get yourself out of the the situations you you found yourself in, uh, and I, I wonder if we just like you know start right from the start, to, you know, in terms of your your beginnings. Sure. Yeah. Do you want me to describe what I what I who my family are and what? Yeah, I'm like and yeah, like t- take us from yeah, just just like where you got your start, like, you know, your mother and your father and, and, and where you grew up and sure. And, yeah, and, I'm, and, uh, and get into it. Yeah. Yeah, I will. Uh, um, so my family are what are called Métis Cree, uh, my mom's people, and they come from a place in Northern Saskatchewan. This is the far North here in Canada. And that's where I'm from. You know, that's where my family are from. And her people were rebels that stood up against British imperialism in the 19th century. And the fallout from that was everything was taken from us. We, our lands were taken. Uh, we had no government support. And we had to live as squatters on the sides of the roads and railways, uh, much like uh, Roma do in Europe. So there was no place for my mom's people in the nation state of Canada as they were building it. The fallout of that was that there was a lot of trauma in her line. Those, her, her people, my father's people are um, Scots, uh, displaced Scots from what are called the Highland Clearances. Uh, they were shipped off to Cape Britain uh, as well. His mom comes from a place called Temiskaming and she was part Algonquin. And so all these different lines had trauma. And when my parents met and had children in the 70s, they had all this historical baggage with them. and. What it did is it uh, led to my father's hardcore addictions. Uh, I would say not the best milieu to be raising kids and our family fell apart and we went into state care. Me and my two older brothers, we were three, four and five. And my grandparents in Toronto who were white heard what had happened and they got us from state care. And that's how I ended up from northern Saskatchewan being adopted into my paternal white family in Brampton, Ontario, which is just outside of Toronto, Canada. And I was raised there without uh, really an understanding of who I was as a Métis Creek person, because back in the day, it wasn't advantageous for anybody to be claiming who they were uh, here in Canada. It was quite a racist society back in the 70s and 80s, despite our national or international image. And so that was the milieu I grew up with. My father wasn't around, my mother wasn't around, my grandparents had to raise me, and I didn't have a sense of who I was. Right, right. And, and yeah, and just talk us through, because I know you describe it in the book, but I think it's, it's interesting for the context. So your, your mum meets, meets your father, and he's like a rock and roller, and 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah I like, a, I love that part. Yeah, dad was a city slicker. He was from uh, Toronto, which is our metropole. It's like London and England. Uh, and so my mom comes from the hinterlander in the middle of nowhere. And so my dad was running from the law because he was a city slicker, hustler kind of guy, uh, quick on his feet. And he ran as far as away as he could to a kind of lawless part of Canada. These road allowances where my mom and her family were squatting. And so when you say so, so when you say squatting and road allowances, what does that mean? Yeah, I wasn't quite sure what a road allowance meant. Oh, okay. So uh, the way that Canada uh, settled the prairies, they had this thing called the Dominion Land Survey. And what it did is it carved the whole prairie into square lot settlements called homesteads, which were 160 acre to 240 acre lots. And they gave those away to settlers, right? They stole the land from indigenous peoples and then they gave these checkerboard pattern land homesteads to settlers. Well, because the Métis weren't like First Nations or uh, people that signed treaties with the government, uh, the Canada entered into what's called the script process with us, where they extinguish our title to land on an individual basis, when really it was just a big fraudulent way to steal land from out underneath us. And in that, we became landless after our national struggle against Canada in 1885. And we came to settle along the sides of the roads and railways and infrastructure lines where there was crown land. So this is public land that nobody owned. And we figured, my ancestors figured out that if we stay on those parcels of land where nobody owns, then we're out of the way of settlement, right? And we exist kind of on the periphery. Again, for European and American audiences, this is the way that Roma exists in Europe. They're pushed out of the nation state to the margins, right? My people are actually even called the, the Roma of North America, right? right. Uh, because we were so dispossessed uh, into these marginal spaces where we lived for 100 years all the way up until my generation in the 70s. Right. And so, and you're, so you're, your mother's living in one of these road allowance houses. So, so when you say squatter, okay, so now I understand it a bit more. And it's not like, her family has got a claim to that land or, and the house no. it's built on. It's just people that aren't bothering her, right? And, and she's kind of allow as his allowance, right? But That's she's right. Not, she's not getting kicked off. So it's like as good as she can get. Oh, they did get kicked off. Oh, they the did as well, right? The, the settlers in uh, what are called regional mun municipalities in Saskatchewan, uh, as well as the KKK, uh, they would uh, light our, our family's uh, squatting homes on fire chase us off with guns and dogs and stuff. This happened in, in uh, the Capel Valley uh, around Yorkton. It happened as well. It happened where my family are from. They, they dispossessed us, stole our land and made it into community pastures for cattle, for settlers uh, and made us, made us basically bureaucratically homeless in that. And because we are not First Nations, we don't have any protection from the federal government in Canada here. Uh, so that's the plight of my people. Right. And that's something I haven't realized until we're speaking right now, that there was a distinction between different nations. Um, so some had agreements and retained lands and others didn't. That's right. My family uh, were warlike, I guess. We were one of only two indigenous people in Canada that stood up against the government and actually went to open warfare instead of signing treaty. And so the government 
uh, treated and protected those, or tried to, uh, in their broken way, uh, First Nations, but they totally neglected and attacked the Métis and erased us from public memory, or tried to, because we were such a military threat. And so the way that they treated us and dispossessed us ties back to the way that we were such a threat to them uh, in the 19th century. And this, this lasts all the way up until the modern era. Wow. Okay. So, so your mother's living in a, in a road, um, reservation, well, sorry, um, allowance, allowance. allowance. Yeah. yeah, that's the word. And then your, and your, and your father comes to town and they, yeah. yeah. He's like a city slick white guy from Toronto. He knows like Led Zeppelin. He knows Jimi Hendrix, all these tunes. And she's like, you got to remember on those road allowances, they didn't really have access to good technology. So she's stuck in the 1950s and 40s listening to like the Carter family and old country music. And so my dad must appear like this rock god when he saw her. He actually, she actually described him a little bit like that. And I'm like, wow. And that was enough to sweep her off her feet. But she was only a teenager, right? She was 14 and 15 and he was 18, 19 when they met. Yeah. Right, and he was already in trouble with the law in where he from yeah. Toronto, right? Yeah, he was. He, he he why he went to Saskatchewan in the first place was to run away from the law. So mm. uh, you know, it was doomed, I guess, from the beginning. If you look at it that way. And then, how did your your mother's parents react to him coming along and her choosing him? I don't think they were happy. I think that they let my they respected my mom enough to let her make her own choices. You know, they, they respected her independence, but like they never got the support that they needed. Um, uh, in Métis society, the, the matriarchs really are the ones in control. They're the ones in, who are the heads of the households. And I guess my cookum Nancy uh, liked my dad, but also was cautious of him because she knew the problems that he had and uh, what their daughter were going through. But uh, I know that my, gr- my grandfather... Uh, from my recollection, wasn't too happy with my dad. So, right. Um, but anyway, she she got away, and yeah, they they yeah. Uh, they ran off, and so yeah. What what do they they continue to live in that in the in the area? What what happened? No, no. My mom and my dad got together, and then they moved to the nearest city, um, called Prince Albert, and that's where I was born. You know, and so. Uh, my recollection of the road allowance is just visiting it uh, when I'm a small kid, right? And my mom would have lived on the road allowance. And so her generation is the generation that actually goes from uh, that condition into modernity. Uh, and like, I can just imagine the culture shock that my mom felt going from, you know, road allowances to an urban center. Uh, she told me one story that she cried. Uh, and she had to follow the, it's like a Robin Hood flower sign that they have in Saskatoon uh, because she recognized uh, the symbol on the side of the building as the flower that her mom used to cook bannock with. That's how foreign the city was to her, right? Uh, initially, you know, she lives like everybody else now, but initially that's the kind of culture shock she endured and that generation endured. Right, right. It, yeah, completely different. And what, what's bannock? Bannock, it actually it comes from the fur trade. Uh, it's uh, like baked wheat okay. uh, fl- flour. And uh, the Scottish have a, uh, a version of that. 
And we took it in, in indigenous people when we came in contact with, uh, you know, Orkney Scots that had this. We adopted it as our own and we ran with it. And now that's like our national uh, dish is bannock, you know, fried bannock. So. Right, right, right. Okay. And so they, they get to pull out and then, and they have th- three of you, right? You've got two, two brothers. Yeah, two older Goonie brothers, you know. There are my one brother, Jerry, is a year older than me. And then my other brother, Josh, is two years older. Than me. But Josh literally acts like he's 40 years older than us, you know, like right. the older <laughs> brother he is. Right. And so they try to make it work, but your dad hasn't changed his ways, right? No, no. They try to make it work. And uh, eventually my mom had enough and she ran away and she brought us to uh, us three boys with her to Moose Jaw and tried to make a go of it. And, you know, I can just imagine she was just a young woman, 18, 19, 20, when all this is happening. And um, it was just too much, you know, three kids, three toddlers with no support. And my dad showed up one day and he made her all the promises in the world and he looked great. And because he was a slick talker, she let us boys go with him. Uh, I think in the hopes that uh, he had a good job. He was, you know, clean and all the things that he said, and it just didn't turn out that way. Uh, he made it as far as Sudbury, I believe, and um, that's where we were apprehended by uh, state police after uh, he kept leaving us alone, actually, uh, to go out for drug money. And one of the neighbors noticed what was happening, called uh, the authorities, and that's how we were taken into custody. Uh, and so, you know, I, I'm sure my dad ran away after that because of shame and just never came back. Like, you know, imagine the shame you would feel about losing your three kids, Mm. you know, and what that would do to you psychologically. If you even, and then on top of that, add on addictions and and shunning from his own family. And there's just the perfect storm to lose kids in. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Cause that comes out, comes out later in the, in the story that, uh, yeah, your, your father's relationship with his father. Yeah, it was a difficult one. And this really stems back to my grandfather's history, right? My grandfather, like I mentioned earlier, comes from displaced Scot people. Uh, they cleared the highlands in Scotland to make room for industrial sheep herding at the end of the 19th or uh, the 18th century. Well, the British overlords, or the English, just put those Scottish scales on boats and shipped them to Cape Britain and, dr- and forgot about them, basically. and. In that economic marginalization over time, there was no supports for those people. And it was very hard. Uh, Men died early. Uh, They took crappy jobs working in in coal mines, you know, really dangerous situations. And my great-great-grandfather, Azariah, he died in a boat fire uh, driving one of these coal steamers through Sydney Harbor. He wasn't there for his kid. Uh, Samuel, who grew up without his parents, and then he went to World War I. He, became, he came back traumatized and messed up and wasn't there for my grandfather. He died early. And then my grandfather was actually raised in uh, the Cape Breton Highlands by his mother's father, who was this Scot. And, you know, this history of trauma, I can look back at the Thistle Line specifically and see that there's just this line of broken men that lead up to my dad. So it's natural that he became an addict. It's natural uh, because the, they say that the, the gateway drug to addiction 
is actually trauma. It's not marijuana. It's not cigarettes. It's not alcohol. If you have a trauma background, either you've inherited it historically or you've had personal trauma yourself, it usually develops as a reaction to stress addiction. And that's what happened to him. And that took him out of our lives. And so this continuity of broken men intergenerationally was natural for me to go into state care. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that from my own addictions, it's, you know, 100% related to the trauma and the greatest degree to which I've healed my trauma that, you know, I just see these addictions fall away. Yeah. 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 And it happens naturally. And the way that I did, uh, and I don't know if about you is, uh, I know that the opposite of addiction is not, um, sobriety. That's uh, a fallacy. People believe the opposite of addiction is actually connection. Yeah. Social connection, emotional, spiritual connection. That's what the 12 steps are all about, right? Creating fellowship, creating link to a higher power, all that stuff. And so I learned that and I talk about that at the end of uh, From the Ashes where you see me, yeah. you know, all these institutions and people start to wrap around me and re- reconstitute me back into society. And that healed my trauma and I got better, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And the- yeah, well, I'd love to get, I'd love to pick pick that up. I, I, I'm still really interested in in the in the formation of this. Though. So, so you're 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 take you get the the police bang on the door. They find you hiding in your dad's place. Your mum's your mum's gone, and they take you in. So, what was that like? Like they, that that wrench from your from at least I guess you had the familiarity of your father. Yeah, yeah. It's I I have a few memories of him. I remember being yanked out of that vent. That's right. I, confir- I confirmed it with my brothers. That's how the police found us, apparently. And so I remember you're all you're all hiding in a vent behind one of the beds, right? And that's right. And he told us before he went out, if anybody comes, go in that vent, you know. And so we did exactly what my dad told us to do. We're being good boys, right? Led by my brother Josh, who was only five years old. And so that I remember being very disorienting. Uh, I remember not wanting to disappoint my dad, uh, like us being taken into state care. I kind of shouldered that myself as a kid. I thought I had done something wrong. I thought mm-hmm. there was something wrong with me. Right. And I carried that the rest of my life, you know? And so, uh, in that transition into what's called CAS here, uh, it wasn't good. We went into a bad home and some bad stuff happened to my brothers and lucky I was too young, I think. Uh, but that in turn affected them the rest of their lives uh, oh. before we were put into the care of my grandparents who were our guardians or adopted us, sorry. Right, right. And, and, and how was that then, that transition then from the, from the state care to your, to your grandparents? Well, well, it was bewildering, right? It's bewildering. I'm in one situation with my dad and my mom. Life is good, you know, somewhat is what I know it. And then abruptly, I end up in just a different city with my grandfather and grandmother. And I don't know why my parents aren't around. They're telling us that my dad's in the hospital. I remember them saying to us. And uh, my dad actually disappeared after he went missing in 1982, after he served his jail time for robbing a store, which is actually what he uh, what happened to him after we were taken into state care. But I didn't have any of these answers growing up, you know. Uh, and for a kid, it's, I don't know, the mechanism is that they just start blaming themselves, right? Mm. Uh, and they don't feel that they're worthy of love. And then 
they don't trust love, right? Because you learn that from your mom and your dad, really, your nuclear family. And it's that unconditional love that gives you self-confidence and helps you navigate the world. Well, I just didn't have that from the beginning. Love and trust were bad words to me. And soon I started expressing myself with my fists. That's what young boys do, right? I joined a gang and all that stuff, and it just wasn't good. So, Right, right. Yeah, and, and I'm guessing, and building that, to what extent were you able to build connections with your grandparents? Not really, not really, because they had their own trauma, because my dad went missing, you know? And then they had their own uh, historical trauma. My dad, my grandfather had it from the history I described to you there, and my, my grandmother's people were actually a mix of Scottish and uh, Algonquin. They're from a place called Timiskaming. And her father went to a notorious uh, bad school, according to oral uh, testimonies from my, uh, that side of my family. And he was damaged really badly in that school. And they never taught him about um, his culture or his people or anything and actually made him ashamed. And so he brought that home uh, and tried to raise my grandmother, Jackie. And there was just a broken home. So they had that. And then their son went missing in 1982 their firstborn son, right? Mm. And they have these three kids that aren't theirs and they're, I think, holding on to us in the hopes that he would come back. And he just didn't, right? And so there was a mix of probably broken love and resentment uh, towards my father. And that translated into, you know, they tried their best and I know that they did love us, but they just couldn't love us like their own children, you know? And... It was hard. It was hard to grow up with them because my, my grandfather was a disciplinarian, a very good man, you know, uh, for doing what he did. But it was hard. There was, you know, he was raised by his grandfather from the Victorian era. Mm. So when I say discipline, I mean discipline, you know, it's not like uh, a 1960s version of discipline. I'm talking about like a 1930s version of discipline. That's what was in our home. Right. So, um, yeah. It was hard. Uh, I don't want to make my grandfather sound like a bad man. He was just doing what he knew. Uh, but it made it hard to forge relationships with him, you know. Where on the other hand, my grandmother, she was the actual strength in our family. And I became very close with her, you know. Uh, even though sometimes our relationship was rocky and, and whatnot, she was frustrated because her son was gone. She still... Me and, me and her still formed a pretty uh, tight bond throughout our lives. And she was the closest to me that anybody was until I met my wife, Lucy. Right. Right. And how about with your other brothers? Well, my grandfather really took his time with Josh, my oldest brother. Excuse me. Um, because he was a second chance at his firstborn, right? And so they instilled in him work. Uh, they gave him all the support. They taught him how to drive. Uh, they helped get him jobs. And eventually my grandfather, uh, knew a man down the street and he got him into the RCMP. And so he kind of, they kind of paved the way for my brother to be successful and they didn't really invest their energy in me and my brother, Jerry, uh, because they were old, I think. You know, raising kids takes a lot of energy, physical yeah, I mean, energy. I know, yeah. I've got two four-year-old boys. <laughs> right. I have one, a newborn now, and I can barely keep up. I'm 45. These were 50-year-old people, 60-year-old people yeah. trying to raise kids. And so I, 
I look at their lack of interest in me and my brother Jerry really is an expression of they're just old, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And and so Josh is is progressing okay, but but you and your uh, your I guess the middle brother Jerry uh, Jerry. are finding it more difficult. You get involved in gangs. And is that where you find, so you've got some connection with your grandmother, but you're also finding there's Leroy, right? You're, you're, you're finding some connection with, with friends. Yeah. Yeah. I have uh, had a lifelong friend named Leroy and uh, he was a, what's called a Newfoundlander here in Canada. Uh, they're like the Irish of Canada, I guess you would say. Um, if you're looking at it from like a UK perspective. And so uh, we were always together. I grew up with him and he became like m- more brother than my own brothers in a way. Mm. And we would like fight and all the time against the other kids. And with him, I was powerful. You know, me and Leroy got into a lot of trouble. We started drinking early, smoking cigarettes, all the stuff that young boys who want to get in trouble do. And, uh, it was like that my whole life all the way up until I left home. Uh, yeah, I miss him. I haven't talked to him, uh, since the publishing of the book and I wonder what he thinks about it. So. Yeah. Yeah. I guess, I guess you're right. The boys that want to get in trouble do, and that's right. You could also say boys who lack connection do, right? Like oh, there's yeah. a, there, there is certainly something that's totally naturally and healthy about exploration. But I, when I think about my own sort of adolescent, early adolescence and, the, and my need to drink, like it wasn't just out of boyish exploration. It was, it was a lot to do with a lack of connection. Oh, for sure. It was, that was the driving impetus behind it. I would say. Uh, and because when you do that, when you lose yourself in addiction like that early on, what you're almost doing is like an inventing a new identity where you fit in somewhere else. And I did that with this, the gangs. And also, I don't know if you guys have them there anymore, but back when I was young, we used to have things called raves, jungle raves, Mm. house raves. And I would go to those and I would literally sleep on the floor and party for like four or five days straight. I did that all through my teen years. Because I found a sense of belonging there. I found a sense of love there from the drugs that I was taking, MDMA, ecstasy, ketamine, cocaine, all these things started to fill me up. And I created this new persona away from the trauma that I was carrying. And I found this connection with this crew of young men who also came from broken homes. We were called the Bud Boys, right? It was like almost Mm. like... 1990s version of West Side Story. We'd go to the different high schools and beat up the other boys and then go to raves and take drugs all weekend and stuff like that. I'm not proud of it, but it's my history. And that's what happens when you don't have connection, like you rightfully said. Yeah. And then, and your identity, like it, you'd, you'd get called like Indian and, you know, what, so what, you know, what, what, how are you kind of <laughs> forming your identity, I suppose? <laughs> Yeah, so my brother Josh, uh, we didn't know that it wasn't good not to be native or to be native in Brampton. So my brother Josh went around telling everybody that we were in grade school and we got beat up for it. And we faced prejudice. Uh, like if we fought in the schoolyard, they'd make what are called whoop, war whoops. That's when people go, oh, blah, 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 blah. Oh, yeah. You hear it in movies. Kids well, would do that to, to us, right? Well, we used to play cowboys and Indians when we were kids. Of course, we were all just white kids, but like there was always one side here with the Indians and, and, and would they, do that. They do that, right? And right, so yeah. the, the kids would do that. 
And I, my two brothers, they, because I think they remembered more of Saskatchewan and my mom's people, they always remained proud of who they were throughout their lives. They knew where they had come from. I was too young to remember. And they tried to tell me I just didn't understand. My mom tried to explain it over the phone. I didn't understand. And so what I started to do around grade seven and eight, because I don't look native, really. I look like a white guy, maybe Portuguese or Italian. I started telling other people I was Italian. This is the era of good fellas. You know, the untouchables with Kevin Costner. It was cool to be Italian back then. And so I, I would go around and tell people I was Italian. And I did that all the way up until high school to deny who I was because I was ashamed of my mom and her people because I was made to be ashamed uh, in grade school, which is really sad when I think about it now. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what do you think the difference was that your brothers were able to claim it and own it? Like, I don't know. Just different people have different reactions to trauma, mm, right? Mm. Some people stand up. Like my brother Jerry is very brave. And he, he always faces adversity. My brother Josh is similar to that. Whereas I'm a runner. I always run. And so me, you know, not, uh, I guess, claiming my identity is a form of running away from myself. And that strategy I learned from my dad back from when we were really transient before he lost us to the state care. And so it's hard baked into my DNA. Where my brothers, I don't know, there's just something different. They're stronger than I am. And they remembered more of Saskatchewan than I am, than I did. And so I think that in that milieu, they just knew who they were, where I didn't, you know, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And did that correlate with like addiction patterns? Were they less or less addictive? Well, I don't want to talk too deeply about my brother sure. and their addictions, but uh, yes, it did happen later for them. So what... Uh, I succumbed to in my teen years from my trauma uh, and my, my 20s all the way up until my er, early 30s because I let go earlier. I let go when I was like 15. I just said, you know, I'm going to let these take it where it goes. And that led to addiction. That happened for my brothers later uh, in their 30s. They were highly functioning adults with families. And my one brother was running two restaurants. Uh, mm. and then just in the thirties, all that trauma caught up with them and, you know, it, it is what it is, you know? So some people have noted when they read my, read my book, well, why did you have this reaction to trauma and your brothers became successful on all this? So, well, it wasn't my story to tell and they did. It just happened later after the book. Yeah. That's a, that's a really I think that's an important thing to say because yeah, you're you're right. It's like it's almost like people make a choice, don't they? They either they they somehow keep a lid on it. They really focus on being functional, and they kind of manage the pain, right? And they try and keep a lid on it. And I think that's largely what I did. And so I kind of remained functional all the way, even until I got into therapy. Right? I never really just sort of let go. And sort of hit the, the the fuck it button, so to speak. And I think others do just say, "Screw this! I'm just going to go for it with whatever my addictions are and just let them let them rip." Yeah. yeah, and you know what? That's almost worse. What you did, I'll tell you why. Because mm. you do not have the constitution of youth, right? 
Mm. You're in your hardcore addictions later in your 30s when you're mm. not as strong. So some overdoses that I had when I was 20, 23, 25, I would have surely died if I was 30, right? Yeah. Where, and what that does is it also robs you of your time to get better too. If you clean up and you get your act together in your 30s, that means you're highly performing by the time you're 40, 45, like I am now. Because I let go earlier where my brothers are going through their stuff and what are they going to come out of it when they're 50 or 60? Mm. There's no time left then. So it was almost uh, better that I let go earlier. I know I don't want to make my brother's choices in life. Um, I don't want to talk bad of them, but th this is just the way things happen and this is how it's playing out, I'm seeing. Yeah, yeah. And of course, I guess it, it comes with a risk, right? Like not that any of this is made consciously, of course, but like do you hit that button and you just completely burn out and get yourself killed or do you somehow get, get back again, which is obviously what, what you managed to do. Yeah. But if you read the book, there are multiple times, especially when I take the stick of dynamite in where I was tr actively trying to kill myself by death, by dealer, I wanted them to shoot me. And if I got shot, Hey, at least I didn't suffer. And if I did manage to scare them to give me a crack rock, that's cool too, which is what happened. And so I couldn't even get myself killed properly. You know what I'm saying? That's how mm -hmm. depraved my life became. So, Well, tell us that. I mean, tell us the dynamite story and, and like where you'd gotten to, what, 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 you know. Yeah. So this that. is like for a far advanced in my addictions. I had uh, auditory hallucinations as well as visual hallucinations because I was in psychosis because I was up for two, three weeks at a time because of my advanced crack addiction. I was also taking oxys because I had a severe infection in my leg. And this speedballing, I guess, set me into uh, this like state of mind where I saw these Ewok creatures coming out of the woodwork all the time. They're like shadows. It almost reminds me of, you ever see that movie Ghost? Where those nice. shadows come and So it, go and watch it. It's almost like these demon things were chasing me every time I'd smoke. And so this one time... I'd smoked too much and I picked up uh, what was a road flare in my old neighborhood uh, near the gravel pit and it looked like a stick of dynamite. And I'm like, well, what if I stick a string on this and take it to my dealer? So I could probably scare them and, you know, get some drugs or maybe they'll, you know, do away with me. And so I went to the dealer's house and I thrust the uh, dynamite in the air and they had their guns ready, but uh, the guy that I, I bought from, who was a friend then, uh, thought I was just kidding, and he gave me a, 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 a crack rock, you know? And so this is all tied to my state of mind, how messed up I was. Like, I literally could hear these, cre these Ewok creatures coming at me. I could see them uh, chasing me down the street. And, you know, so it was like a logical progression of my psychology at that time is that I just wanted to end myself in that story dynamite. That's what it's actually about. Uh, sometimes when people read that, they, they see false bravado in that, and that's not what the story is about. It's, it's actually about suicide. And if anybody knows trauma, that's a natural reaction to massive uh, uh, childhood trauma is suicidal ideation throughout the rest of your life. And this is what uh, that story is actually about. Right. Yeah. And, and it progresses to, to, to the, you end up in prison. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. Tell us about that. Like how, how, how did that happen? 
So I'm what's called like a part-timer or I'm a small, t- I used to be a small time like hood and uh, I steal to eat, steal to uh, win the in fact, uh, win the affection of girls that I liked because I just didn't have anything. And I had this record and I uh, fell out of a window when I was living with my brothers and shattered uh, my leg and broke both of my wrists and uh, they did an operation on my leg and it got really infected. And I thought I was going to lose my leg, but I was in this state of psychosis. And so I went and I robbed a 7-Eleven uh, in the hopes that I could use the justice system as a safe place to recover. Uh, because I was locked in a pattern, what's called cyclical homelessness, where I get like uh, money from welfare, get a room, uh, stay there for a month or two, then run away. Uh, when the rent was due, smoke it and do whatnot and end up staying in a shelter or sleeping on the streets and then repeat the cycle over and over and over. And so this had been happening for years uh, before I got into this accident. And so when I looked at the state of my leg, I'm like, hey, maybe if I rob that store, they'll put me in state care and I'll finally get the care that I need to take care of my foot. And that's what I did. And it worked. I got to keep my leg and I went through the, the justice system. And in that, was my rebirth, right? I, I found education when I was inside and I got to keep my leg and then I eventually ran marathons and got to rehab and whatnot. So Right. Wow. And and when you say found education, like what what was it that you found that, that started the shift? Well I just saw a guy at the end of the range, right? Uh who did his time, who just didn't bother anybody. He didn't trade chocolate bars. He didn't gamble. That's a big problem inside that leads to a lot of fights. He didn't gossip about anybody. He wasn't trying to find anybody's case out or anything like that. He just did his work. And I was like, wow, that guy's kind of have this armor against this world here, you know, and maybe I can change my life if I do what he's doing, you know. And I went over and I talked to him and he told me that the chaplaincy, the Salvation Army chaplaincy is where you do um, your education when you're in detention. And so I formed a relationship with the chaplain and I started doing my high school. And so it was just that guy, you know, watching his example in a really bad situation that gave me hope, I guess. And it was really important for me because the downfall of my life really was I I started in high school when I got kicked out and I started rebelling then. And so 14 years later, 15 years later, I saw this opportunity to do my GED and I took it and I haven't looked back since. That, right. That's, I find that really interesting. So it was, it was, it, it was seeing a role model and decided I'm going to, I'm going to emulate that guy. Um, yes. And, and so it, I mean, I guess, I guess I'm tra- contrasting it with my own experience. It, so it wasn't, so, so was, was therapy and dealing with any of this tra- childhood trauma a sort of a part of it? Or was it simply like just modeling a different way of, of being an actor? In the beginning, that's what it was. Right. In the beginning. I, and this is a controversial thing that I, I'm going to say here, but it was the truth of what happened to me. When I was young, I had a friend who went to this workshop called Landmark. Right? Mm. And in this workshop, he had this exercise where he had me uh, choose a lighter uh, or a set of keys, right? And he did this exercise with me when I was young. And he said, which one do you choose? Do you choose the keys or the lighter? And I said, I, I choose the lighter. And he's like, why? 
I said, well, it's because it can light this joint. I was smoking a joint at the time and it was useful. It had a utility. He said, wrong. And he'd pick again. I said, okay, I want the keys. And why do you want the keys? I said, well, I can take your car and take off and go sell it if I want or whatever. I forget what I said. And uh, he's like, that's wrong. And I said, well, what's the answer? Because I've given you. And he said, well, the, the reason you choose is because you choose. And all the excuses that your brain makes up after the fact of why you choose are just justifications. They're just excuses. He said, the fact of, the, of life is that you just choose. And so I remembered that when I was in jail. I remembered mm-hmm. that. And I was like, wow. So I'm, if I just choose that education, then all the hard work is already finished. I don't need willpower. I don't need all those things to keep me on track. I don't need discipline because I made that original choice, right? And so that's what I did. Now, the second half of that is I needed institutions to wrap around me. I needed the justice system and the food and medication and the education that they offered. I needed the rehab that I eventually got into with the knowledge and love of all those people that built around me and put me back into community. Then when I was transitioning into society, I had my wife, Lucy, who I'd been talking to since rehab. And all these people and institutions actually supported that original choice that I made in jail all those years ago. And so I just continued to make those choices along the way. And so the truth of change is really that it's two-sided. You need will and the choice, the power to choose, but you also need the institutions and people around you to give you the availability and the option to choose better for yourself. That's the truth. And I know this from hard lived experience. Yeah, that's that's a really powerful, and it, it, it's it's stopping me short because I think when if, often when I sort of conceptualize my own recovery, you know, very egotistically, I'm like, oh well, it's because I did this therapy and I did this and I did that and I and and I did all these great things and now look, you know, how how recovered I am, and of course at some level that's true, but I completely miss the fact that, that yeah, I did put my trust and faith in you know multiple institutions along the way. Yeah, yeah. Like when I think about Lucy trusting and loving me and letting me into her home for the, you know, I I was a criminal uh, with addiction issues. Everybody thought she was crazy. But that benevolence and and unconditional trust and love was like a force field around me that allowed me to choose university, that allowed me to access society again. She taught me all those things, how to, you know, get a job. She got me my first job. She helped me fill out the university applications. There were people like that all the way along, the whole recovery. All the people in rehab I was with, the guys in jail that helped me with my reading, the chaplain, and on and on and on. And so that often gets missed, right? In- yeah, I miss it. When I tell my own story, yeah, that's, that's a really powerful message. Yeah, yeah. And it also gives credit to the people that put the work into you too, right? Uh, I have a one really close friend, Jennifer Lennox Terrian at the University of Ottawa, who knew me when I was a street person who's coming off the streets. And the lessons that she taught me about like communication way back when I was in rehab, I still carry those with me. And I always honor her. I always say she gave me a certificate that was just printed out on Word after I finished a modules class that made me believe that I belonged in university. That needs to be recognized, you know, because that was part of the healing journey, too. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, so you're in jail, you're, you, you see this guy, you start doing your education, the, the chaplain's helping you. And then, and then you, what comes next? Like, Oh, what comes next? I meet a, I met a bunch of really wise people in jail. It was the opposite of what I thought. Uh, jail, the most, the worst things to me were, were, were not the violence. It was the fear of uh, disease and boredom. Those are the two things that really <laughs> kind of get to you. And so when I was in there, I uh, met uh, some, some guys that taught me lessons about life, how to share my, my cellmate, Loriston, and not expect anything back. Just give for the sake of giving, you know, and how that can build trust and community and loyalty to people. Right. And this is what the saying, you know, I guess, love your neighbor is all about. Right. He showed me that in real time. Just give away your food and don't expect anything back. And from that, I got the respect of the guys in jail. Right. That's, a, uh, that's, that's fascinating in itself because you imagine the way you get respect in jail is you become the toughest guy. Right. That's kind of what no. you see in the movies. No, it's through sharing and just like navigating society. On the outside, you be a respectable guy, you treat people well, uh, you know, you don't talk bad about people or gamble and you're good, you know, and that's kind of how it was for me. I was in PC though, it's protective custody and because of my leg, I couldn't really protect myself. Um, you know, and I had priests uh, telling me about like the machinations of the heart too, you know, about how hurt people hurt people, mm. you know. And that's really what's going on with me. And he gave me an enlightened tool, actually, an empathetic tool. And this is, you know, these are people come, coming from hardened criminals are telling me this, right? And those are lessons I carry with me and take into my new life now, you know. Uh, and it gives me empathy in the work that I do around homelessness and uh, healing of trauma and whatnot today as a professor. Yeah. Yeah. And so when you, what's the next step when you get released from jail next step was i continued to get in trouble uh after i you know for about a year uh and then i end up in front of a judge and i have a choice you know <laughs> continue doing what you're doing or go to rehab and get it right and so i went to rehab and i relapsed like everybody does my first time almost died and then I commit a B and E and I end up in, in treatment. I'm hey, sorry, what, B, mandated. B, B and E, what's that? Uh, break and enter. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I was just saying I wasn't a nice guy. I was an unsavory street person. I was, you know, uh, negative in that way. And um, in that sentencing, Harvest House, this treatment center, which is a Christian rehab, which is the only place that would take me, that's why I had to go there. Uh, they had tra trained paralegals in their organization that went into the Ontario court system and they posted what's called surety or bail. So they mm. put money up for me and they took me directly out of uh, jail into treatment. And why that was significant and saved my life is because for years I had tried to get into treatment here in Canada, but it's, it's all run publicly or it's privately and you need insurance. What that means is that there's huge waiting lists. So I had gotten sober in the past and tried to access treatment, and they all say, oh, call us back in eight or nine months when you're, you know, tell us where you are. I'm like, I'm homeless. How, how can I f call you back? And then I'd be discharged back into homelessness and uh, raided back into my crack addiction and alcohol. 
And so Harvest House with this trained paralegal that posted bail for me, they scooped me out after 11 days of sobriety where I had some momentum behind me. And that saved my life. And I served my one year, what's called dead time at Harvest House. Uh, It it operates like a minimum security uh, jail where you can't leave without escort and all that stuff. And so I did my year there. And in that year, I finished my high school. I started to make amends with people in my past. I, you know, I started uh, really trying to take care of the compound. I did all the jobs and stuff. I learned work ethic and I had to used to have to stand up in group therapy and talk about my resentments and, and whatnot. And in that, I, uh, my grandmother passed away. She uh, contracted leukemia and it really, really affected me. I went to go see her. And when I was there, she, she called me a dumbass. She said, stop being so like this. Uh, stop hurting people. And so I made her a promise to finish my education and take it as far as I could and to be a good uh, person in the world. And then she died. And that promise I've carried with me uh, in my heart and in my new life, when things get hard, I remember I made that promise and I have to honor what what I did. And then when, as my grandmother was dying, uh, I was discharged into what's called uh, reintegration housing from the compound, where you're kind of, uh, you're moving towards uh, navigation in society again. And I started a Facebook profile. I didn't know what Facebook was. And I had all these girls and people from my past contacted me. And one of them was this beautiful redheaded woman named Lucy. And she was just consoling me about my grandmother and she was kind. And, and we started talking and I, you know, I was a guy in jail. I just wanted to get in her pants. So I sent in her poetry and stuff like that. (laughs) It worked, you know? And then, um, when I was getting discharged out of the, the institution, she said, Hey, why don't you come and live with me? And that was like a bridge. That was a bridge into normal life, right? Out of all those institutional settings and homeless settings. And so I owe my new life to my wife and her chance to take a chance on me. Yeah. Well, she must have, she must have said, what do you think she's, what do you think she saw beyond the poetry? <laughs> and you've got some great poems in the book. But... I don't know. I have no idea. I just, uh, maybe that I was trying, you know, and that I wanted to do well and that I had a good intention in my heart. I have no idea how she knew that. Uh, I didn't even know that, you know, but belief is a funny thing when someone believes in you and they love and trust you after so long of never having that from anybody ever. Mm-hmm. It's almost like a rain cloud in the desert, you know, it just nourishes you and you can do amazing things, you know, and that's what happened with me. And uh, so it's her out of her spout of love that everything grew. I don't know that sounds really cheesy, but that's, that's what happened here. Yeah. Well, and, and that was, that had been a pattern, right? In a sense, you'd allowed some of that belief in from the chaplain. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of guessing here, but is it, am I right that that's something you'd been starting to do? And now with Lucy, it was like taking it to another level. Yeah, it was already happening. There was like, mm. uh, you know, from that original decision, right, to pick up the GED books in jail. That's a form of self-love and belief. Yeah. And trust in your own abilities. You know, I used to get beat up in jail for handing in my homework. So I had to have had that, right? You'd get beaten up. Yeah, because they thought that I was flying kites to the screws. 
because we'd always have cell raids right after. It was just coincidental after I handed in my homework. And so the guys on the range thought I was squawking on everyone, right? And so they confronted me and I never broke. And that's the beginning of my education. So if you look at it through that light, everything that happened after was easy. It was that time that was the hardest, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't get beat up for handing in my homework now and, and my PhD study. <laughs> no, right? no. Someone I mean, I, might argue against my point and not like it, but they're not going to punch me in the face. So I'm cool, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, at the school I went to, sometimes people would take the piss out of me if I was like good in class, but <laughs> I, never yeah. got beat, I never got beat up for handing in my homework. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. 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 It gives yeah. me armor for the critics too now, I guess. So I've been through worse. They can't kill me, you know? Right. Right. And, um, yeah. So you made it through that. And then what was, so you'd, you'd, what was the first job you got that Lucy helped you to get? Oh, this didn't make it in the book. And I'm glad you asked. I got a job as a French fry cutter. I, it was a place called Poutini's, uh, on Queen street. Poutine is, uh, this strange concoction that Canadians eat. It's French fries with gravy and cheese curds mixed right. together. I got a job okay. making, making that right. It's kind of disgusting when you think about yeah, it. Yeah, I was going to say, it doesn't sound <laughs> too appetizing. So we had this thing on the wall. It's like a, a potato French fry cutter. And I would launch these potatoes in and cut them. And I got so good at it because I was trying my ass off, right? I wanted to really do well in life. And so I became the, the all-time uh, potato cutter in their history of that company. And so I'm really proud of that, right? That didn't make it into life. But it's an expression of me just wanting to do well, you know? Yeah. And honor her, you know, she, she, she stuck her neck out and got me that job, you know? And those people took a chance on me too, you know? So I just yeah. wanted to do all and write by them. Yeah, I mean, they really did. I mean, I guess there's a company in the town I'm in now. Um, I'm right now, I have this interview at a place called Berries and Edmonds in England. And there's a, there's a place that's like a dry cleaners and a key cutting place. And uh, they, Timpsons, and they, they take on ex-prisoners, right? And I've always yes. really admired that. Like, Yeah, that's exactly what this company is. It has like a ethical social reintegration program work program that's basically what informally i went through and you sound like it sounds like this company that you're talking about is a formal uh company that does that but yeah that it saved my life those people gave me purpose made me feel good about myself and then i went to go and work for my uh uncle uh making kitchen countertops and kitchens uh after i went into a trade and yeah, it was hard work right so you're working like working class jobs and then how do you get from the leap to become professor it's it's a long story um but in a nutshell i saw that my wife lucy who was at york university was in her studies uh and she was doing well and she's you know i made that promise to my grandmother to take my education all the way and so naturally i started looking toward university and she helped me get into university. And when I got there, she was there in her last year. And so she was even like a student navigator for me. She helped me learn how to research, how to edit papers, how to write properly, because I was functionally illiterate when I was a, a prisoner. And, you know, all that uh, difficulty I had in my first and my second year 
reading and comprehending uh, actually forced me to work harder, right? So I learned how to work uh, in my first and second year really, really hard because the other students were naturally just smarter than me. They'd come from high school. They could read properly, all those things. And around third year, it all switched. Everything clicked. I, you know, my comprehension was up. Everything started work, And then I started outperforming everybody because I had already had to work my butt off. I just continued to work that way. Yeah, you had the work ethic that was outpacing everyone else for that. That's right. And I had the work ethic from being a blue collar person. Mm. That's my background, right? No privilege in my family whatsoever. And so by fourth year, I had outcompeted the whole student body at York University of 50,000 students, undergrads. And I got what's called the Governor General Award for the highest grade point average at York University. And so that's the progression of how things happened. And, you know, it's totally, um, you know, tied to my work ethic. And also because I had addiction issues, I was white knuckling as it's called in the first yeah. uh, year where I wasn't really digging into my resentments or my family history. And I knew that if I didn't get this sorted out, that I would eventually relapse, even if I had all that training from rehab, I needed to figure that out. So I phoned back to Saskatchewan for an assignment uh, given to me by Dr. Victoria Freeman, wherein she asked her students to contextualize their lives in Canadian colonization. And so I didn't know anything about my mom's people, so I phoned back to my Auntie Vaughn, and she told me that we were bison hunters, we were Michif and Cree, and that uh, we have this long uh, resistance history and we should be very proud and don't be ashamed that your family had nothing and they were dispossessed. There was a reason for that. It's because they stood up for themselves where nobody else did. And so with that, I handed that paper in and I got like an A and she kicked it up to another expert in Métis history, uh, Dr. Carolyn Podruchny. And Carolyn Podruchny actually flew me back to Saskatchewan and reconnected me with my mom and all of her relatives in my third year. And in that, really, uh, they say like history is supposed to be uh, objective. You're supposed to have a distance. Well, because I was so green and I didn't know anything and I was just trying to discover myself, I made it totally subjective. I made it about my family, how it impacted me and how our role in Canadian history colonization. And with that, there becomes a passion and a fire that lights you up, right? You're reading about stuff that's about you and you're writing about that and you're controlling the narrative. And so that passion plus that work ethic just galvanized and I just outperformed everybody naturally. I, I think I had just different purpose uh, for being yeah. in school. Yeah. Yeah. Because you're, 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 you're not just trying to get the good grade. You're trying to figure out your own identity. I mean, yeah, I'm trying to live. I'm trying to survive. I'm trying not to die when I read an article, mm. you know, because that's what happened to all my peers, all the people I ran with. They're all dead. A few of them are alive. They're in prison or in a mental institution or something. I'm among like five people that I knew from back then that's alive. And so that's what I'm doing when I get up in front of a classroom. Apart from educating, disseminating knowledge, I'm just trying to save my own life. Mm. for my daughter now, for my family. So I don't know if that makes any sense, but that's yeah. what I think I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. And that makes, well, it makes it a lot more sense how you went from, you know, 
cutting potatoes to being a professor, like, you know, later in life. I mean, that's, that makes a lot more sense. What makes it even more, I guess, even for me, when I look back, uh, astonishing was that I entered university and seven years later I became a professor, right? Usually Mm. that's how long it takes someone to do a PhD. Right. You guys have D fills there that takes about three or four years. Mm. So to do your four or five year undergrad plus a two year master's and a four year PhD, which is like 12 years, I compressed that into seven years, six years and became a professor. So the time frame that I'm talking about and the achievements are not drawn out over time. That makes it more even me. I don't know how I did that. You know, I I just continually got up at 430 a.m., I worked for 16 hours a day at my desk. I went to bed and repeat, repeat, repeat. And I didn't take time off. I didn't take weekends. I didn't, you know, barely celebrated things like Christmas until I got to my goal, right? And then once I, I became a professor, I started to take my foot off the gas. And I wrote a best-selling book in yeah. that time period too. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. amazing what you can do when you don't want to die. That's what I... Yeah. 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 Cause it's easy to think about it. Oh, you, you know, you were passionate about your history, but it's, it's more than that. It's you're staying alive. This is keeping you alive. Yeah. And also I know that now when I share, there are other students like me that come in. They're also impacted by colonization and they've been disassociated from their identity and family. And so when I share the knowledge and history that I know, I'm also helping and saving their lives in a way. I don't want to take too much credit, but I am part of that process for them, of them yeah. meeting their ancestors and knowing their history. Yeah, and that's, and that, I guess that emerges from your, your perspective here that people's recovery, it's not just about them and their choices and the work that they do. And we hear this term, you know, self-work, and that's, you know, that's something I use a lot, but it's, it's not, it's the, it's the whole environment. And now you're part of that environment for others. Yes, yes. It's a much more community-oriented way of thinking about recovery. Yes, it's what we have, and I've learned this through my elders in Saskatchewan. It's called Wakutawin. Wakutawin, I can't speak my language. It was stripped away from my people. But what it means is a worldview where everybody helps everybody else. And that communal way of looking at it, it kind of flies in the face of what's called the liberal order where we're taught to see ourselves as individualistic mm. indigenous people my people uh michif and, and Nihail, they see themselves as part of a collective and so i've just taken that and looked at my recovery that way and i try to act that way in the world because it's actually that worldview plus my biological relations that makes me uh, a Métis person today, right? And so I try to live with that in my classroom and the work that I do today. Yeah. I mean, just, just as we speak, it's really helping me. It's really challenging me and helping me, yeah, see, see my own recovery in a new light. Yeah, and you could be doing this for other people with yeah. this podcast. They well, yeah. Tune in I, and say, this is my lifeline. You're helping save their life by putting your heart on the line. Right. Yeah, and, and and I get that in comments all the time on 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 the videos. But I, I tend to think, oh, you know, that's a that's a nice thing that they said, and that's good that I, you know I'm doing something in the world. But I I guess I just never really view it as being like 
I'm almost imagining in my mind as like I'm a I'm a pillar in this this community of healing. And I'm like one part that they're leaning on and trusting, and there'll be others that they they that help them. And it's like we're all recovering together, right? Rather than this is my contribution, which of course it is, but there's there's two two ways to look at it. There is, yeah. And I, I like that that you also drew in the individual because it, mm. that is part of the, the that's the first half. You need to mm. pride yourself, you need to make the choices, you need to do all those things and see that, but you also have to have this outward perspective, right? Of you are part of this larger critical mass of people that are trying to heal and get better today. And it's almost like that saying, maybe that's where that saying is one bad apple spoils the lot. You know, it's kind of that kind of thinking, right? Yeah. 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 No, I, no, I, I, I get it. And so, and what's, so what do you see as, because I'm even going to ask this question differently now, like what do you see as, your role then in the community, you know, you've talked about part of this is the, the Meitei history and teaching that and helping your students connect with that. How else do you see the role of yourself and the community in helping people to recover? So because of the global success of From the Ashes is like far and away, like way more than anybody expected. What that has done is it's created, uh, it's almost made me into an image or an idea here. And that takes up a lot of space, right? And, you know, for a while it was good. It's good for me to get my achievements to be recognized, to show that there's an example of healthy indigenous male living. Uh, There is hope and recovery. All those things came. But what that ultimately did too it has attracted people that wanted to say, he did it. Why can't all the other indigenous people do it too? They wanted to transform my story into a bootstrap narrative, which I clearly articulated wasn't. And so I realize now that I'm taking up a lot of space for a lot of other people that need to heal, that need to get their stories out there. And so what I've done is I've actually actively uh, turned down opportunities this whole year to get out of the way so that other indigenous uh, youth and and writers can come up with me. And I'm actually, I've gotten people, uh, agents, and I try to connect them with my publishing contracts now to facilitate that. And when I talked to my elder and I told her what I'm doing, she said that that's the final step of you actually becoming a real leader for a community Mm -hmm. is you have to make space. You have to think of others. You have to be generous. It's not all about you. Right. And I did that for two years and I got, I actually gotten some hot water within the community because of that. Uh, because, you know, you're rewarded uh, for having this big ego, but it was also making me very sick. Right. Because as addicts, it's all about us, it's all about controlling our emotions. And I realized, you know, I'm getting sick and this is going to lead to addiction. And I have to think about uh, being uh, altruistic and benevolent. And so I've really consciously tried to step back and let others and help others succeed now. And that's where I'm at right now. And I'm, I'm focusing on what are called futurisms instead of looking back at the past all the time, which I do professionally as a historian. I'm trying to imagine new futures for me and my family. And like, what it, what's the life that my newborn daughter Rose is going to have? What are the kind of things that I want her to read? I want her to read about indigenous health. 
I want her to read about positive fatherhood, family, all these things. And so my scholarship has shifted from trauma-based and addiction studies and homelessness now over to uh, this other stuff. But I needed that first bit, you know, to study the negative so that I could affect the changes that I need to be a healthy man today, to repair my relationship to food, to end trauma for my daughter. And so that's where I'm at now. Right, right. Beautiful. And what do you see... What do you see as now as being possible for for Métis, like the, the, the nation? Uh, it's a big mess right now. Yeah, honestly, there's like a lot of infighting here. I think what's going to happen then in the next 30 years, I think there are a lot of Michif clans and families that are going to just buck off. The term Métis, the political term, I think that they're going to start aligning their understandings of themselves towards kinship. It's going to go away from the national and into like these kin-based understandings of who we are. And I see a little bit of that in the scholarship starting to happen. Mine is going that direction. And uh, yeah, hopefully it will end a lot of the bitter infighting that's happening right now. Right. And and so when it's it so that's focusing much more closely on on immediate ties right so and 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 letting go of nations yeah so if you look at yourself right how do you see yourself do you see yourself as a englishman primarily mm. or do you see yourself i don't know what your last name is do you see your, are, yeah. are you part of the atherton clan right you probably see yourself more along familial lines right your mom yeah. and your dad, where they're from, that's your people, right? That's how you know yourself. And you know other Athertons are part of the Atherton, you know? I don't know. Mm. That's more powerful, I reason, than seeing yourself as part of this, like, amorphous nationhood of, of Englishmen, you know? Even though that is important, but I think the more specific and correct way is to look at our kinship. And that's what makes us who we are, right? Because within one family, let's take my family specifically, we have Michif, we have Cree, we have part Algonquin, we have a mix of French way back in the Cree side, we have uh, all these different nations, right? So which one do I pick? The one that I, makes most logical sense is I'm a Morissette from the Arcan clan. And that's how I know my people, my mom's people, and fit into that milieu. That's more mm. important than them being part of the Métis nation politically, right? And that's, you know, um, that's a controversial thing for me to say, but that, that is the way that the scholarship's going, simply because there are too many people trying to claim us that don't have any of our history or family connections. And so that's the only way that I can see to sort that out, you know? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm intrigued. You still in touch with anybody from your prison days? The guy that you've, that you first no, looked look to? No. Dave. No, I haven't seen Dave. And I haven't seen Priest. I don't know what happened to any of them. No. I would like to if they can get a hold of me, you know, search me. Mm. But yeah, Bucky, no. And your brothers? How, how, how has your relationship changed with your brothers? Uh, Josh, me and him are good. He's, uh, my like confidant and I, uh, my older brother, you know, it's mm -hmm. good. he's my protector. Me and Jerry, my uh, middle brother, we don't talk anymore. 
Uh, there's some sibling rivalry between us as well as uh, just ill feelings. I put the guy through the ringer, right? I basically ruined his 20s. Uh, because he always had to take care of me. And so there's a lot of that resentment that he holds, and rightfully so. I, I, you know, I owe him the world. He saved my life. Uh, but he's still resentful. The way I look at us is we're like the, the native Gallagher brothers from Oasis, you know? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> we're just always at each other. We love each other. We can create wonderful things together, but we just don't get along, you know? Yeah. And then, yeah. And then my brother Daniel... Uh, he's back in Saskatchewan with my mom. He's younger than me, and he thinks I'm a millionaire because I sold a few books. I'm not. You don't get rich selling books. And he always phones me to buy him pairs of like Air Jordans and stuff. And so I don't want to break his illusion, so I always buy him the shoes. But I can't afford <laughs> Air Jordans. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that no, that makes sense. And, and you're also pointing to something that. It, of course, is one of the tragedies of, of, of trauma families, or is that the siblings all end up very often end up hating each other and and, and yeah. falling out, right? Because yeah. it's 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 part of the yeah situation. I wish I was closer to my brother, but, but yeah, I think I part of that is because of what you know the trauma to the extent that we did that we went through. I mean, I think yours is at a different level, but still, it has the same effect effect in different degrees. Yeah, and let me say something to what you said there specifically. You said. Your trauma might be greater than mine. I do not believe that. I think trauma is... No, the other way around. I think yours is. Yeah, that's what I said. But yeah, that's what... Yeah, that's right. Yeah, what I believe is trauma is relative to your perception of it. So something like, I don't know, uh, you losing your pencil in grade seven could have traumatized you just as much as me losing my father when I was three and impact your choices for the rest of your life. Accordingly, it's relative to your perception of trauma. And so because I've been through more of what I've gone through doesn't mean that mine were necessarily more traumatic than yours, right? Yeah, that's a super important point. It reminds me of a guy who we've had on the show. He's a bomb disposal expert. He's done tours in Iraq. And one of the things he said was really interesting about trauma for veterans was he knew guys who were just administrators, right? And they never left the base. They never saw direct action but they would come out of the tours more traumatized than he was that he was going and diffusing bombs, you know, on the front line um, because their experience of simply hearing the bombs going overhead was enough to severely traumatize them. So that is such an important point. It's not about what happened. It's about an individual's reaction to it. Yeah. Like I used to climb up the sides of buildings, apartment buildings on the outside. We're talking like 20 stories. You think that would traumatize me? That for what the way I was, I was like Gollum on crack, right? Mm. It was just another day at the office for me. That didn't bother me at all. What traumatized me more was like breaking people's hearts and always having to remember the look in my grandparents' eyes when they caught me with that cocaine. That's more traumatizing to me. And so it's relative to my experience, right? Uh, I don't know if I'm making sense. No, no, it makes complete sense. And it is an important point that, yeah. Yeah. And it's probably, and it's just not a productive thing to get into in general, is it? Oh, you know, is my trauma more than this guy's or did I, did I have a worse response for the similar? Yeah. It's just a pointless exercise, right? Yeah. 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 It is. It's not the trauma Olympics, right? We're all. (laughs) Yeah. That's right. Yeah. No, very good point. Yeah, Yeah. That's great. Right. Is there anything we haven't talked about that you thought might come up uh, that you'd like to, to, to share? Well, I, wanna, I want people to understand that my book is actually about love. 
It's about mm. love. It's not about trauma. It's not about addiction. It's not even about homelessness. It's really about love. It's an inverted arc towards love. So at the very beginning of the book, I'm emplaced within my community. I have the love of my mom and my dad and my cookum, and we're in Saskatchewan. I'm learning how to be a good relative. That's abruptly ends. And then from that point on, all the way up until I, I, I start my education and uh, start to find love with Lucy, it's a quest for love. That the whole book is an inverted quest for love. And it eventually ends where I find love. You know, I find an education. I learn to love myself. I find a connection to creator. And in that grew everything, you know. And so don't be afraid to read the book if you're, uh, I know a lot of, there are a lot of reviews that say it's quite dark, but it actually is an inverted quest for love. Yeah, yeah. And well, you mentioned, that's the first time in this conversation you've mentioned creator. So when did that come? When, when did you start finding a connection with creator? I found a cre- connection to God in um, jail, actually. When I first got sober, when, when I went through withdrawal, there was this Bible that was in there. And like I kicked it and it went open to uh, Psalm 32. I didn't read it. I read it later. And in that, I started to, I don't know, have hope, you know. I knew that there was something in there with me. I can't explain it. I knew I was loved for the first time. I knew that. I don't know. Maybe I was just sober for the first time in a while and I could finally feel again. I don't know. But it was real to me and I kept that. And then I started to explore that. I tried to take world religions when I was in jail to understand what was happening and that that I didn't finish the class. I failed because it was too hard. I didn't understand what I was reading. And then when I went to this Christian rehab, again, the God theme. But again, I only went there because they were the only people that would take me. And when I, when I got there, I was like, well, might as well uh, go to church and see what this is all about. And I tried going that route. And that's okay because Michif people have been Catholic for 250 years, right? And so as an indigenous person, it is part of my mom's people's history then when i got to university i um i started exploring my native background and started looking at what are called ceremonies and talking with elders and started to see that you know a lot of the concepts that are talked about like you know loving your brother and taking care of uh people and just being a decent human being they're actually here they're saying the same thing in our wakudawan our worldview But it's not hierarchical. This is more egalitarian. And so as I've been reconnecting with my family and my studies, I'm becoming more attuned to that side of my spirituality. And what I've kind of developed is like this syncretic um, kind of fusion of both of them where they don't collide with one another, you know. And I can be both, you know, Uh, I could read my father's prison Bible and get something out of it, or I could go to a ceremony on the land and Mm -hmm. and fast and be with my elders. And that makes perfect sense and uh, perfect connection. And uh, it's really important, really, this connection to creator or God or Allah or whatever you want to call it, because it's through that promise. that's, That's one of the promises I also carry, right? Like that I'm going to be a good person. That, you know, and that keeps me motivated in a lot of ways that I'm going to try to 
you know, follow the teachings and do, do right by other people. So that combined with the promise I made to my grandmother, this is like the basis of my new life, you know, uh, spiritual connection. Yeah. Oh, I'm glad, I'm glad you said that. And that's something I'm focusing on a lot more in my own recovery. You know, it's been recently something, yeah. right? There's one thing to do the healing and the grieving and the body work and the emotional work, but there, there, there's, there is another level. Yeah. And I, what I'm talking about, God, I'm not talking about like some dude that sits on a cloud. I'm talking about the universe and everything in existence around, you know, that to me is God. And that's yeah. why I'm praying to, or I'm trying to get a connection to. Yeah. 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 Fabulous. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, Jesse, thank you so much. Thank you. I don't want people to think I'm a Bible thumper at the end of it. This is just well, maybe no. it's the trauma of what I've gone through. I don't know. No, I mean, I, I have sometimes have the same hesitation talking about that, but it's, you know, yeah, it's there. That, ha- that happens to jail guys. They, they either come out really worse than what, or they come out really religious. And that kind of happened to me a little bit too. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think, you know, becoming really dogmatically religious can be like another form of white knuckling, right? It can be another form of like hiding. Oh um, yeah. It becomes an addiction in itself. And mm. I've seen people stuck there from AA for 30 years and mm. that becomes their crutch. I, I'm not talking about religion as a crutch. I'm talking about spirituality and a connection to a higher power. Yeah. 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 Good. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, yeah. And, uh, just, just, just really appreciate you being so, so vulnerable. You know, obviously the work in, in the book itself, but it's, 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 it really is. It's, it's a great read. Um, Really Thank enjoyed you. it. Um, can, can I ask one question? How did you yeah. get in contact with the book? Uh, through the, the film that you are in, which I've never actually seen with Garbo Mate. Oh, yes, that's so right. So I that's knew right. you were a contributor to that movie. Uh, and that got me curious. And then I looked you up and I'm like, yeah, this, you know, we, we deal with trauma a lot on this show. I've, you know, had my own you know, journey with it. So just, just seemed like a great fit. Yeah. And on that point, I'll end maybe there. He, yeah, I know he uses from the ashes because it shows the pathway into treatment as well as charts a pathway out. That's what's unique about from the ashes is it offers a toolkit and solutions for people that are trying to find their way out of trauma. And so I, that's why I know he uses the book. I've heard him talk about it. So, yeah. And I think, I mean, I've read a lot of trauma recovery books and, and the thing I take away m- most from your book, I mean, there's a lot to take away from it, but, and it's come through in this conversation is that, that community angle. Um, I, I think we live in a sort of self-help paradigm and that is wonderful and brilliant. And there's, you know, I, I, I couldn't be more grateful for the self-help book, health movement and it's, and it's limited, you know, yeah. it, it's, it's, in the end, it's, it's a community that has people recover. Yeah. And COVID's teaching us that really, really mm. sternly, you know, without the collective healing, we're just going to be stuck in it. Right. Mm. And so, yeah, different way to look at things. It is. And it's, it, it, it's, it's not, it's, it's actually me breaking patterns of thought. It's not easy. I have to force myself to think in that way. It's, it's, uh, I'm sure it'll become more natural as I get more exposed to people like you, but it's, it's uh it doesn't come naturally to me 
And I'm guessing yeah. a lot of other people who've, who've been raised in a Western sort of consumerist, individualist, you know, That's culture. Right. That's in it. It it all stems back to the Judeo-Christian hierarchical worldview. And so it's going to be very difficult, probably one of the most difficult things that you do to break that way of thinking, you know, and I'm not talking about communism either. That's a whole mm. different other way to look at it, but. <laughs> well, that's yeah. just another, ends up just being another pyramid as far as I can see. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Good. All right. Well, thanks once again, Jesse. Thank you. How do I say thank you in the, in your language? Uh, I don't mic. know. I have no, I say hi, hi. I don't know if that. Hi, hi. I have no, yeah. It's in the Jesse language. <laughs> That's right. All right. Thanks bon so much. Bomon bon bon P is, is Anishinaabe. That's not my language, but that's what I know. That's what they bon say. Bomon bon P. You. Okay. Yeah. Right. Thank ah. you. All right. Take care. Bye. Yeah, take care. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.